this morning, rather than continue on in Romans, I'm going to be starting a new series in Philippians, kind of like Pastor Richard did with the book of James prior to his leaving us. Next week, Pastor Doug will pick back up in Romans and we'll continue on as usual. But on the occasions when I preach from here out, uh, I'll be working through Philippians instead. That said, if you have a Bible with you this morning, uh, please open it to Philippians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to read along anyway, you are more than welcome to use a pew Bible from the seat back in front of you. Uh, If you do use one of those pew Bibles, you will find our text on page 921. Books have always been a, a big part of my life. My wife will attest to that. My parents were both avid readers during my growing up years, and I've loved to read ever since I first learned how in the first grade. In recent years, it seems like reading has been on the decline as a preferred pastime in our society. People are crazy busy, and the digital age has brought distractions and entertainments that don't require the time or the discipline of book reading. Despite that, you most likely still know someone, maybe it's yourself, who loves to pick up a good book. Maybe they get excited when a new Stephen King book hits the bookstore shelves. Or maybe they're loyal fans of James Patterson's work or Nicholas Sparks' work, for whatever reason. Or, if their interests lean more toward Christian literature, maybe they can't wait to pick up the new John Piper book or the new Tim Keller book. Maybe they're eagerly looking forward to David Platt releasing a new book or Al Mohler releasing a new book. Readers, almost without fail, have a favorite author or a top three or a top five favorite authors. But you've probably never heard anyone say, I can't wait to pick up that new book that Phil Johnson just edited. No one has ever said, I have to get to Barnes & Noble now. Arlene Hampton just transcribed a new book and I need to read it. When we think of books, we think of the authors who wrote those books. And maybe we don't always consider or appreciate how many people are involved in the process of getting a book from the author's pen or keyboard to the bookstore shelf or to the Amazon listing. John MacArthur doesn't finish typing the last page of a book and then hit a magic button that instantly sends that manuscript to the publisher. That manuscript passes through a lot of hands to get it ready for publication. Most people, I think, just skip over the acknowledgement section of a book because it doesn't hold a whole lot of relevance for them. But the people acknowledged and thanked by the author in that section are all the people who made that book happen. Writing a book is definitely not a one-man or a one-woman show. The cover may say John Piper, but without the various individuals supporting and working with him, that book wouldn't even exist. I think we tend to view the Apostle Paul in the same way, as a self-sufficient Lone Ranger missionary who didn't need anything or anyone except the Holy Spirit. Sure, he had some sidekicks sometimes, like Barnabas and Silas and Timothy, but he didn't really need those people. He just let them tag along because he was a nice guy. But thankfully, Paul's letter to the Philippians can go a long way toward dispelling that notion that he was a Lone Ranger, not that he was a nice guy like the editors and the proofreaders and the researchers and the agents and the publishers that work with an author to get a book into print, the believers in Philippi were an important part of Paul's support system that enabled him to spread the gospel all over the Roman Empire. 
In fact, Paul saw the Philippians as nothing less than his partners with him in the gospel, as you're about to see. So let's read Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The first thing I want us to consider this morning is believer's identity in Christ. Believer's identity in Christ. Letters in the Greco-Roman world followed a certain sort of outline or form, much like our letters do today, where we begin a letter with something like dear and then the name of the recipient, and then we end our letters with our own name. In Paul's time, it was customary to first identify the sender and then identify the recipient and then give a sort of wish or blessing to the recipient and then proceed with the body of the letter. It's a form that Paul followed in all of his letters in the New Testament, and Philippians is obviously no exception to this. Paul begins verse 1 by naming himself and Timothy as the writers, and he describes himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. That term servants would more appropriately be translated slaves, but most English translators tend to stick with servants or bondservants instead because of what comes to mind when we think of slavery in present-day America. We think of the horrific chattel slavery of the 18th and 19th centuries. While there were many substantial differences between the slavery of Paul's day and the slavery of Thomas Jefferson's day, the bottom line is that in both systems, one person was owned by another person. The slave did not belong to himself or herself. Rather, they were the property of their owner. Their life was not about doing their own will, Instead, they were bound to do the will of their master. And so the words slave and even servant are replete with connotations of humility. And Paul doesn't employ this word carelessly in describing himself and Timothy in this way. In the salutation of many of Paul's letters, he describes himself as an apostle. He doesn't do that here. He's not writing this letter to rebuke the Philippians or to chastise them or to defend his ministry So he doesn't have a need to remind them of his authority by calling himself an apostle. Rather, he uses this term servant or slave to make plain to them that he is in the Lord's service. He's not focused on his own will, but his life is wholly submitted to doing the will of his Lord and Master. 
Paul will go on in Philippians 2.7 to say that Jesus took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It's the same word that Paul uses here in 1.1. If God the Son was willing to humble himself to take the form of a servant to effect our salvation, then Paul could do no less than to humbly adopt the title for himself and Timothy as well. A number of Old Testament saints were called servants of the Lord, so the title could be seen as a, a designation for those who were performing some special service for God. But Paul doesn't necessarily seem to see it that way. Listen to Romans six fifteen through 19. Paul writes, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Clearly, Paul sees all genuine believers as slaves. It's not just an honorific for the giants of the faith. It's how the Romans and you and I are to see ourselves in Christ. And this isn't just some quirk of Paul's. Peter also urges the rank-and-file Christians to see themselves as slaves. In 1 Peter 2.16, he says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We, as followers of Jesus, are free from sin and death, having been bought, having been ransomed with the shed blood of Christ on the cross. But we were freed from slavery to sin that we might be slaves to righteousness instead. So Paul identifies himself and Timothy as slaves of Christ Jesus in the first half of Philippians 1.1. In the second half of the verse, he identifies the Philippian believers as saints in Christ Jesus. One of the greatest offenses the Roman Catholic Church has ever committed against its own members is making them believe that the term saint is reserved for miracle-working super-Catholics. Rightly understood, the term saint in Scripture means a holy one, or a person set apart by God, which means it's an applicable term for any believer in Jesus Christ. If you have saving faith in Jesus, you are a saint. You have been set apart by God for inclusion in his chosen people, his church, When the Catholic Church tells its people that saints are some special class of believer, it robs them of assurance that they have been set apart by God. If they can't be sure of that, they can't be sure of their own salvation. And they're forced to pursue works righteousness, hoping that at the end of their lives they've done enough to tip the cosmic scales in their favor. Listen, I'm going to say it again. If you have faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, You are a saint, saved and sanctified by God's grace for his glory. Listen to verse 6 of Philippians 1 again. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you 
will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When Paul says, I am sure, he uses a Greek word that has a great deal of emphasis. It means he's absolutely certain beyond the shadow of a doubt that God will keep the Philippian believers till the day of Jesus, the day the Lord comes back to earth in the same way that he went up from the earth in the opening chapter of Acts. In John 10, 27 through 30, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Saints of Crossway, God is going to complete the good work he began in you when he caused you to be spiritually born again. Jesus made that plain, and Paul was certain of it as well. Notice two more things about Philippians 1.1. First, Paul addresses his letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Paul doesn't address the letter to the church as a sort of single generic entity, but rather to all the saints. Having started the church at Philippi, he knew many of the believers who made up that congregation. Doubtless, some had come to faith after he had left the region, but he knows a good number of them, and no doubt he has each one of those believers in mind as he writes this letter. Notice he doesn't address the letter primarily to the overseers and deacons, to the leaders in the church. He doesn't say to the overseers and deacons with the saints who are at Philippi. He doesn't make it solely the responsibility of the leaders, the elders, and the deacons to convey his thoughts and his instructions to the rest of the church. He addresses the letter to all the saints with the, over, or with the elders and the deacons. His words are for all the believers in Philippi equally. In chapter 4, we're made aware that there was some sort of disagreement between two women in this church. And there are a few hints in the rest of the letter that Paul was concerned about divisions in the church. But he doesn't take sides here in this salutation. He doesn't address the letter only to all those who agree with Syntyche or only to those who side with Euodia. He makes it out to all of them and all equally. Despite disagreements, all the believers in Philippi were still members of the body of Christ. They all had equal status in Jesus even the overseers and the deacons. We as believers identify ourselves as both slaves of Christ and saints in Christ, and we do so in the unity that is ours as the body of Christ. The second point I want to consider this morning is believers' partnership in the gospel. Believers' partnership in the gospel. Paul wraps his salutation in verse 2 by bidding the Philippians grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is standard in Paul's letters. And then he begins a section of affectionate thanksgiving for the Philippians' partnership with him in the gospel. Philippians is known as one of Paul's prison epistles, meaning, obviously, that Paul was writing this while he was in prison, most likely in Rome. The inmate experience in the Roman Empire was quite a bit different from what we normally imagine when we think of prison here in America. If you get sent to prison today, the prison provides you with a jumpsuit and slip-on sandals to wear and three meals a day to eat. 
The clothes may not be super comfortable and the meals may not be gourmet quality, but your physical needs are met by the Department of Justice. In ancient Rome, if you were sent to prison, you were responsible for meeting your own needs. If you wanted to eat, you'd better hope you had friends on the outside who could bring you food. If you needed clothing, again, you were dependent on a friend or a loved one bringing you something to wear. The Philippian believers had gotten news that Paul was in prison, so they had sent him some money by way of a brother named Epaphroditus. It's a good name for those of you who are thinking about having more kids. And Epaphroditus wasn't just to hand Paul the cash and then turn around and make his way back to Philippi. The expectation was that Epaphroditus would stay on in Rome and assist Paul in any way that he could. The Philippians genuinely cared for Paul, and they wanted to help him as he spent his life in the spread and the defense of the gospel. In fact, Paul states very plainly at the end of this letter that when he left Macedonia, which is the region where Philippi and Thessalonica were, the Philippians were the only church who gave him aid. Now, we know from passages like 1 Corinthians 9 that Paul was not always willing to take money from the churches that he founded, even though he believed he had that right. In verses 14 and 15 of 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Paul clearly did not take money from the Corinthian church, but his relationship with the Philippian believers was such that he allowed them to support him financially. So Epaphroditus had brought Paul a financial gift from the Philippians with the intention of staying on as a helper to Paul in his imprisonment. But Epaphroditus had gotten deathly ill either on the way to Rome or while he was in Rome. He recovered, but word of his illness had reached the Philippian church and they were rightly, under, or rightly worried about him. In light of that, Paul had decided at best to send Epaphroditus back to them so that they could be eased in their concerns for Epaphroditus. And he used the opportunity of sending Epaphroditus back to write the letter that we have before us today and send it back with him. And the Philippians didn't only provide aid to Paul. They understood that they and the believers everywhere were all part of the same body of Christ and that all believers have an obligation to all other believers. Think of all the commands in Scripture that contain the words one another, love one another, outdo one another in showing honor, live in harmony with one another, don't pass judgment on one another, welcome one another, greet one another with a holy kiss, comfort one another, agree with one another, serve one another, so on. The Philippians recognized their union with other believers in Christ, and so they shared their resources, not just with Paul, but with the impoverished believers in Jerusalem as well. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Philippi. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly 
for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. A collection was being taken for the relief of the poor in Jerusalem. And Paul says not only did the Macedonian churches give generously out of their extreme poverty, but they earnestly begged for the favor of being allowed to do so. Many of us, if we see the bell ringer outside Walmart in December, we'll drop a buck or two in the bucket, right? And we'll go on our way. But we're certainly not begging the bell ringer for the privilege of being able to give beyond our means. All of this isn't a guilt trip to get you to give more to charity. Rather, I wanted to make plain to you the character of the Philippian believers so it would be clear why Paul was so grateful to them or for them and their partnership in the gospel. Look again at Philippians 1, 3 through 8. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul had to write some difficult letters at times, whether to correct some area of sin in a church or to defend his ministry to a church against the slander of false teachers. But here he's able to honestly say that he thanks God every time he thinks of the Philippians and that any time he talks to God about them, he does so with joy. And it's all because of their partnership with him in the gospel from the very first day he brought the gospel to Philippi. As we've just seen, being partners with Paul wasn't just about sending him money. The Philippians did that, but they did it because they had a genuine love for Paul. They weren't just throwing money at a problem. Between the monetary gift and their sending of Epaphroditus, they were assisting Paul in any way they could. And even in doing that, they were potentially placing themselves in a precarious position. Paul says in verse 7 that the Philippians were partakers with him of grace, both in his imprisonment and in the gospel's defense and confirmation. By sending him aid, they were willing to let it be, know, let it be known that they stood with Paul. And anyone who supported a prisoner ran the risk of calling undue attention and suspicion on themselves by the governing authorities. The Philippians didn't care, though. The affection of Jesus Christ that Paul felt for them was obviously reciprocated. They weren't just fair-weather friends to Paul, but they held him in their hearts just as he held them in his. They were, prisoners, they were partners with Paul in the gospel, and Paul knew he couldn't spread the good news of Jesus Christ as widely as he did without their partnership and that of other brothers and sisters like them. Where are we at with that? The SBC's cooperative program is a wonderful thing, and it allows missionaries to go on the mission field and work without having to come back every couple years to report back to their supporting churches and renew commitments to financial support. The downside, though, is that we don't typically get to hear from the missionaries we're supporting. So it's very easy for us to give our offering every week, 
knowing that some of it will go to helping missionaries on the field, and never look beyond that to really see the individual men and women that we're supporting. So it's very easy for us to give our offering every week and just letting those people remain faceless and even nameless to us, even as we financially support them. The Bay Area Baptist Association just recently had our on-mission celebration. It takes place every five years, and it gives us the opportunity to hear from and interact with some of the missionaries who are supported by our giving. And that same weekend, we had a missionary to Africa come to Crossway on Sunday evening to share with us about what she's doing on the field. It was an opportunity to encourage those missionaries just by showing up and taking an interest in how God is using them. We didn't have to select an Epaphroditus to go back on the field with them to be their assistant as a show of our love for them. I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad for not going to the on-mission celebration or to downplay the vital role our offerings play in the work of our IMB and NAM missionaries. But our giving and all else that we do should be prompted by our love for all the saints and our desire to extend the gospel's reach into the darkness of our broken world. We are all one body in Christ, and that means we're all partners in the gospel, whether we realize it or not. Finally, this morning, I want us to think about believers' sanctification and love. Believers' sanctification and love. For those who aren't strong spellers, that's S-A-N, C-T-I-F-I-C-A-T-I-O-N. We've seen that in verse 4 of Philippians 1, Paul tells the Philippian believers that he prays for them with joy. Now in verses 9 through 11, he tells them explicitly what he prays for them. Notice he doesn't pray that God will meet their physical needs. He doesn't pray that they'll be safe from persecution. He doesn't pray that God would bless them with wealth so that they'd have more money to give to him and to Jerusalem. He doesn't even pray that God would pay them back for the money that they've already given to the Jerusalem offering out of their poverty. It's not that praying for material needs is bad or wrong. That's not the point. Paul just has a higher priority in his prayers for the Philippians. Look again what he says in verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul prays for them to increase in love. We in America toss that word around so much and use it in so many ways that it's all but lost its meaning for us. We talk about loving tacos or loving Coke over Pepsi or loving football or loving weekends. We say that we love a certain actor or we love a certain author, even though we've never even met those people. Love has also become a rallying cry for the LGBTQ crowd. We're told that love is love and it should be affirmed and celebrated in all its forms, no matter how depraved. And that failing to do so means that you fear and or hate people. Love has come to mean a lot of things, so what does Paul mean here? Does he mean love toward God or love toward other people? Notice he doesn't specify. I think that's deliberate. I think he means both. Listen to Matthew twenty-two thirty-five 35 through 40, a very well-known passage. 
And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The two greatest commandments, according to Jesus, are to love God and to love others. The Apostle John in 1 John 4, 20 and 21 says, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Continuing on in 1 John in 5, verses 1 through 3, John says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So love for God and love for other people are very tightly intertwined in Scripture. John says you can't really have one without the other. If we love God, we'll love our brothers and sisters in Christ. In light of that, I believe when Paul prayed for the Philippians to abound in love, he meant both their love for God and their love for other people. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says he prays for them to abound in love with knowledge and all discernment. Why? so that they may approve what is excellent. Why? So they'll be pure and blameless for the day of Christ and filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus for the glory and praise of God. All of that is a wordy way of saying that Paul prayed for their sanctification. He wanted them to continue to grow into Christ's likeness, to look more and more like Jesus in their lives. And the way they do that is to increase in knowledge, knowledge of God's will. And the clearest and only trustworthy place to find God's will is in the Bible, God's written word. That knowledge is important since love can mean so many different things. Without an understanding of what pleases and displeases God, we run the risk of falling into and or giving approval to grievous sin in the name of love. That knowledge of God's will then enables our discernment we're able to approve what is excellent, according to Paul. That means when faced with multiple options in a given scenario, we're able to choose not just between right and wrong, but between what's good and what's best. The Holy Spirit uses our knowledge of the word to guide us that we may more completely seek to do God's will. And in discerning and approving what is excellent, we draw ever nearer to God and ever further from sin, with the end result that we will be found pure and blameless on the day Jesus returns in judgment. Please note that pure and blameless does not mean morally perfect. Scripture is clear that we will not and we cannot achieve perfection in this life. We still wrestle against the desires of our flesh, we still live in a fallen world, surrounded by fallen people, and our souls still have an ancient enemy who seeks at all times to derail our faith and destroy us. 
Perfection will remain out of reach so long as we remain on this earth waiting for our Savior to come back. What Paul means then by pure and blameless is that the trajectory of our lives will be moving toward ever greater conformity to God's will. We'll be growing in sanctification instead of happily wallowing in our sins. And what will that look like practically? We'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Our lives will bear fruit. Jesus, on several occasions, used the metaphor of a tree bearing fruit to refer to believers performing righteous acts. Maybe when you hear the phrase, the fruit of righteousness, you think of Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. While love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are all character traits or qualities, they can only be expressed through our words and actions. I used to know a guy who was constantly starting sentences with, I'm the kind of guy who... Listen, you can tell me all day long that you're kind, or that you're patient, or that you're gentle. But unless I can see those qualities on display in your life by the things that you do and say, you're just blowing smoke. So, to summarize then, our love for God and others needs a knowledge of God's will revealed in God's word, So we'll be able to practice discernment and choose those things that are best, thus becoming pure and blameless and righteous in our words and deeds for the day Jesus comes back. And all of it ultimately is to glorify the God of our salvation. Our names may never appear on the cover of a bestseller. We may never find ourselves famous in Christian circles for our work in preaching or promoting or defending the gospel. And that's okay. We've all been given different gifts and talents and resources by God that he means for us to use to bless our brothers and sisters in Christ and to spread the good news of Jesus that others may be added to the body of Christ. The Philippians weren't less godly or a lesser class of Christian because they didn't go on multiple missionary journeys or write multiple books in the New Testament. Paul certainly didn't look down on them. Rather, he considered them his partners in the work of the gospel, just as important and just as used by God as he was, just in a different role. So be a faithful slave of Christ and saint in Christ right where you are. Know that being part of Christ's church makes you partners together with all the other parts of Christ's church and abound in a knowledgeable, discerning love and so be found blameless on the day of Christ for God's glory and praise. Let's pray. Thank you, Father in heaven, for the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, your Son, that by those things you would redeem us, God, that you would ransom us from sin and death. But Father, make us aware and remind us that we are not just saved from something, but we are saved for something. God, may we grow in sanctification. May we have a right understanding of our identity in Christ. May we do all things for your glory. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. If you would, please stand with us now as we sing our song of response. I stand amazed in the presence.